fear can persuade and fear can ultimately paralyze. We're right on the line between those two things happening with donors. And it's leaning towards paralysis. And I worry about that, not just with donors, but with activists and campaign volunteers and voters eventually. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Frank O'Brien, for many years ran a prominent political direct mail company, most recently called O'Brien Garrett, which he has sold and has started something called O'Brien on Message, a forum for talking about how Democrats and their allies should be communicating this year. I really enjoyed hearing Frank's story, how he came into politics, how he built his own firm, and how he went about finding a new role after so many years of service. It's a really good episode. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Frank O'Brien of O'Brien on Message. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list. And Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. Frank, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, no problem. I started my career in politics and progressive advocacy back in my hometown when John Kerry ran for Congress in 1972. That was uh, my first involvement in politics, really. And then that led to working with a consulting firm, a political consulting firm in Boston, Matua Payne, Cotley and Thorne, which was one of the biggest Democratic firms of the time in campaigns. 1970, late, late 1970s, I moved to Washington. I worked with Ralph Nader for a couple of years in Public Citizen, the pre-electoral Ralph. And then in the 1980s, I, right after Reagan got elected, I directed the DNC, Democratic National Committee's direct response program for like six or seven years. Grew the program from you know, 50,000 donors to half a million donors, which seems small today, but was quite a, quite a growth at the time. Then in 1987, I formed the firm that's now O'Brien Garrett a direct response fundraising and communications firm. We worked in both the political and the advocacy and charitable arenas and all, all those arenas. And we got the opportunity to work with a lot of really great organizations, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, Doctors of Borders, MC International, a uh, couple of presidential campaigns, Hillary and, and John Kerry. The firm sent it, its work on messaging, on really compelling kind of messaging. So we raised, you know, literally billions of dollars for those groups over over time. And I'm proud of that, but I'm prouder still of the fact that what we did was we raised that money by expressing those organizations in a really unique and, and authentic voice and organizationally positioning them in a way that set them apart from other organizations. At the end of last year, I decided my client-facing part of my career was over. I sold the firm to my long-term partner, Yvonne Garrett, I'm going to kind of launch some new thought leadership projects in just a few weeks. It's quite a career. It must feel, I don't know, bittersweet to summarize it all in a paragraph or two. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's interesting. I always feel like I'm blessed because I always wanted to uh, have an impact on progressive politics and progressive ideas. And I wondered when, I, when my career started how I would sort of find the path for that and I felt like I really lucked out. I found a path that really kind of worked and, and expressed my own personal values in a really compelling way. So you don't get to do that very often. That's pretty cool. No, it is. So you mentioned your hometown and Kerry. And so I'm assuming you're a Boston 
person. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts. This was the center of the district at the time, the center of the district that Kerry ran in. He lost that election, by the way. But he went on, and as you know, had, had he had a career after that. He managed yeah. to find a career after he that. He found yeah. the way. He found the path. Yeah. What kind of family did you grow up in? Kind of a classic Irish Catholic family. Not a lot of income. My dad had a hand injury. He was a truck driver. Had a hand injury, an operation on his on his hand that went went badly. Um, so he was unemployable. So my family actually grew up on welfare for a few years. Jim Hightower, who's a good friend of mine, told me one time, he goes, O'Brien, you came by your progressivism authentically. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess I did. And then I went to uh, all Catholic education, <laughs> Catholic the grade school, Catholic high school, all boys Catholic high school, and then Holy Cross out in Worcester for college. What was your acquaintance with Kerry that you would end up in his campaign, or is it just that he was running in your district? You know, he was just sitting running in my district. And it's interesting how an individual moment in someone's life can kind of shape it. I was home from college. Campaign season was just starting in, you know, May or June. Uh, and I just wandered into Kerry's campaign headquarters to see what happened. And a guy named Tommy Valley, who was part of the consulting firm working with Kerry's campaign, sat me down and just chatted for like an hour. Uh, and sort of, I don't know, somehow... I think he really thought it would be really helpful to have a little kid in the campaign. So we had this great conversation. And, and I don't think I would have been engaged in the campaign if it weren't for that conversation. And in my life, after that kind of stemmed from that conversation. Were you the type of kid that read the paper and were, was up on politics? Yeah, I was pretty active in anti-war activities at, at Holy Cross. Got it. What did you study at Holy Cross? Double major psychology and political science. And before I got involved in campaigns, I was all set to go to Cornell and get a graduate degree in sociology, and I was going to be a college professor. <laughs> There's something that seems like a common thread among a lot of people I've talked to that they'll say something like, well, I did my first campaign and I got the bug. Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it drew the difference between kind of the more reflective, you know, academic career that I had in mind and a much more kind of active, hands-on kind of political career. So, yeah. So, tell me about that first congressional race. I know it's ancient history, and it, I didn't remember that he lost his first yeah. race, which yeah. is an yeah. embarrassment. But what happened there? Well, it was a fascinating year. It was 1972, so it was McGovern year. I went to vote with my parents for McGovern. I was seven uh, at, in Boulder, so I remember it pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So it was in Massachusetts. It was really interesting because. There were a lot of congressional races up at the same year. I don't know if you remember Father Drynan, the Catholic priest who was a member of Congress in the district that later became Bonnie Frank's district. Drynan ran that year for the first time. Kerry ran that year. Kerry won a very crowded Democratic primary, largely through organization, really tough field work, and of course, his own reputation from Vietnam vets. And he was leading the general election. It was a Democratic district, should have kind of won pretty handily. The Lowell Sun the local newspaper tore him apart in the last in the last week of the general election. Wow. Pictured him as a and it's interesting because they reflect you saw the same theme come up in his own in his presidential campaign. I was wondering if he got swift boated for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, he got kind of swift boated the first time. But, you know, cartoons of him with Jane Fonda, who was at that point culturally not a low Is that a conservative paper? What was happening? Yeah, very conservative, right almost right wing paper. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And they, they did a job on him and he, and and you just saw the polls sink like in that last week, just totally deflated. Did you get to know him on that campaign or were you too, you know, much on the intern level to, yeah. to do that? No, I got to know him, but you know, you know, I wouldn't say I got to know him in, in a best friend kind of way, but I got to know him. And then I did uh his Senate campaigns and his presidential campaigns. So you know, she got some a lot better after that. Yeah. What do you think of him? I think he's great. I think he's I think he's a uh, really interesting character. It took a lot of character, as you were talking about earlier, to dust yourself off and find a new way to kind of act. And you, don't, you remember, but what he did is he became a local district attorney, did really, really great work, rose up, ran for lieutenant governor in Massachusetts and won. So he really rebuilt his career and he, he knew he had the talent that he had. 
he found a way. If he found a roadblock, he, he just found another road. It takes a lot of persistence and determination to do that. Certainly a lot of presidents and presidential nominees and senators that lost that first race. Obama, there's lots, lots of them. Yeah. And yeah, Lincoln. I guess, I guess you have to have that, that stick-to-itiveness to play at that level of politics. Yeah. You mentioned working with Martella and Kylie, that firm. I used to read uh, Campaigns and Elections magazine back in the 80s in the library when people did such things, uh, actual paper magazine. I remember that was like one of the firms that that kind of was a name firm. Like I didn't know anything about it. I knew who advertised or who got cited in articles. Tell me about that that firm. They're a really fascinating firm. John Matola was from Michigan. He was a Detroit kind of organizer. I honestly don't know how he ended up in Massachusetts, but he came to Massachusetts and quickly established himself as a consultant. That really smart. He was one of one of those consultants. He he sent me a sound one time, and he said there are two things about being a consultant. The first thing is knowing what someone should do. The second thing is being able to convince them that that actually is what they should do. And he was really, really good at, that, at both parts of that. He, he would, we would go to meetings and I would sort of, you know, say, here's what I think should happen. And people would go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then John had a deep Marlboro man presence and voice. And he would say exactly the same thing that I said. And everyone would just nod their heads like, oh, John, that's brilliant. So I learned a lot about sort of just presentation from him. The other people in the firm, Tom Kylie, who is a pollster in the firm, taught me that part of the industry. And I carried survey research into the rest of my career from him. What is the secret to sort of pitching a client, converting a client to your point of view? Like if you were advising someone trying to come up in the ranks of political consulting from what you saw there and what you've learned along the way, what, what would you say? What's the knack you need? So confidence. You know, expressing yourself with confidence. You're looking for someone to kind of guide you. And, and so you hope that they feel like confident that they know what, what to do. Obviously, you have to also know what to do or it's, the confidence quickly sells itself out. But it's that kind of confidence. And it's, and it's being authentic about the challenges. I remember when we first signed the ACLU, they had been with another firm, they with Roger Craver. It was a, kind of a predecessor firm of ours for a very long time. We wrote a, a proposal that had real unique insight about their work, if I can say that about myself. The ACU at the time, it's hard to remember, ACU at the time was kind of a trust. We challenge you to hang with us. We live by our principles in a real unique way. If you are tough enough to live by the principles like that, you can maybe hang with us. And it was almost like it was a chore and a test of your ideological nerves to, to be part of the ACLU. So we challenged that notion. And we said, no, sure, it's important to stand by your values, but it can also be a joyful experience to, be, to stand up for what you believe in. Our take on that aligns so totally, completely with Anthony Romero's personal kind of style and, and objective. So having an idea that is unique to circumstance. Going into a campaign and saying, hey, if you make this campaign about your job performance, you're going to lose. But if you make this campaign about your opponent's values, you might win. Having some perspective and 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 take on, on things is also, I think, pretty key to ending up with the client. Did, did that kind of confidence come to you naturally or... It came out of my Matilla pain experience. It, 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 it uh, Matilla was a supremely confident consultant. And what he taught me, I mean, he and Kylie taught me, was that, was that it's important to have that confidence, but it has to be grounded. It has to be, it has to be real. It has to be authentic. A lot of times when we, did, when we do RFPs against other agencies, I'm always struck by the fact that people will say to us, oh, you're the first firm that really kind of studied who we are and thought hard about who we are and what our place in the world is. Most of the other proposals would deal with the tactics and short-term strategies and stuff like that. And we would deal with an organization's place in the world. That made a lot of difference in why we had, not only did we, did we have any successful clients, but we have really successful long-term relationships, 20-year relationships with the ACLU and Planned Parenthood. I always envied the, the consultants that had that kind of presentation of self that works for that. It's one of the reasons I didn't ever tackle that 
my my own confidence is very situational. If it's an area where I'm where I feel very confident that I know something or that I have the right solution for someone, I'm fine. Otherwise, pretty terrible. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, my partner Ivan Garin and I did a one of those kind of psychological profile things of you know what what your skills are and how you travel how you travel. It came back that we were both identical in the sense that we were persuasive and confident in our opinions. But hers said that she convinced people by really laying out the detailed case for why she was right. And I convinced people by talking with like a voice of God presentation. <laughs> That's part of the Matilla legacy in the way that I carried myself as a consultant. Why'd you leave them? And- the firm kind of broke up at the end of the 70s. Yeah. And I wanted to get to Washington. I knew that I would be, uh, if I stayed in Massachusetts, I would be a second circle Matilla guy for the rest of my life. If I came to Washington where the action was, I could have a, a career that was more personal to me. You mentioned you went to the Nader organization. Is that what happened yeah. next? Yeah, I yeah. went to public citizen. I came down and worked with public citizen for a couple of years with, uh, with Ralph when he was kind of at the height of his consumer advocacy work. I talked to another guest who had also worked for Nader at maybe that phase of a career who said that like you got assigned or given an area to work on. This was lawyers mostly. And then whatever you took on, you found there was so much depth to it. A lot of people made their careers in the area that he randomly assigned you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It was really interesting times we were working in that network. There was quite an incredible number of colleagues. Mark Green was still there. Ron Brownstein, who's the the, the reporter. Yeah, yeah, the reporter. Ron Brownstein was a a communications person for Ralph at the same time that I was doing the fundraising. What did you learn working there? You know, it's hard to say. Working for Ralph is such a unique experience. Not always a rewarding one. When they were handing out sort of uh, interpersonal skills, he he wasn't in line. (laughs) He, he, he wasn't giving you the warm fuzzies at work? No, no, not at all. And he, and he had real blind spots in terms of personal interaction. So that made it kind of interesting. My first experience with him, literally the first day I went, I went to work there, we were walking from one office to another. We had kind of a hideaway office. We were walking to his hideaway office. And we were in DuPont Circle. And I started across the street. And I realized halfway across the street that he wasn't with me because I was walking against the light. And I turned around and he said, dangerous and illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Unsafe at any speed. And I said, oh boy, this is going to be quite a ride. (laughs) But you did fundraising for him? That was the job? Yeah, I did direct mail fundraising for him. It it was a great group of people. Yeah, he attracted a lot of talented people. Yeah. And direct mail fundraising really becomes your signature, right? That's your, Uh, that's what. Right, right. Right. You must have been picking up some skills in that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what happened in the in the in Matilla Payne is, uh, as you know, political consulting firms have kind of seasonal ups and downs. So, when the campaign season's over, it's kind of like, okay, now what do we do? So, uh, we decided that our skills, research, messaging, analytical ability, et cetera, translated pretty well from the campaign world to the direct response fundraising world. I started to pick up direct mail at Matilla Payne, and then kind of learned as, as I did at Public Citizen and at the DNC. When you use the word direct response or the words direct response, I realize I don't really know what that means or what that means to you. It's a, what term, do you mean? It's, it's a term of art that people use to include digital work. Ah, so it's it's yeah. anything where you're sending a message to someone. Any kind of donor fundraising, really. Yeah. 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 So tell me, how does your career develop? post-public citizen? So post-public citizen, the DNC was looking for a new director of direct response program. I had a pretty good resume at that point. So I got that job and I got to work with some really good sort of folks. Roger Craver was the DNC's consultant at the time. So I got to work with him for most of that time. Learned a lot from Roger Craver. Definitely. I always tell him he was intentionally or not. He was a mentor of mine. He and Matilla are probably the two biggest mentors in my career. So I learned a lot there and then just formed the firm because I felt like it was time to kind of spread my wings a little bit and work for some more groups. Most people who have worked at the DNC testify to it being a kind of a difficult place. Was it when you were there? 
not so much. You know, it was the Reagan era. There was a lot of ideological logic to, to the work you were doing. The second chairman I worked with in particular, Paul Kirk, was a really, really classy, classy guy. And he set a really great tone for sort of the way that, and, and, and it, kind of, it was kind of a Obama-like, no drama kind of environment. In, in his tenure, I don't think it's always like that. You started to allude to this impulse to start your own firm. Tell me about the founding story there. How do you launch it? What did it take? So I'm at the DNC. We're kind of outgrowing the Roger Craver relationship. Roger's kind of got so many different clients and so many different, and I don't know if you remember this period, but uh, there was a period when Roger was working for the DNC and John Anderson. I didn't know he was working for John Anderson. Yeah, yeah at the same time, which was kind of weird. And he's working for all three Democratic committees. So he kind of was overextended. So we decided we'd sort of start to sort of form kind of more uh, more help from other people. So Hal Malchow at that point was a writer, kind of an independent writer. So we hired Hal, we hired a couple of other people, and then just decided that I don't think you want to be a lifer at the DNC um, for all the obvious reasons. So so uh, it was time to kind of do something. So we sort of did, took the DNC as a client, was a founding client. We were a political firm for the first couple of years, did mostly campaigns and, and party committees. And like I said, that's when we started signing a couple of other clients, Oxfam America, the ACLU uh, became kind of, the ACLU was a big get for us, kind of the one that kind of put us into, you know, the big leagues a little bit. Um, and, and that's when we, we sort of, like I said, Hal and I sort of went in different directions with our firms, but, and both had great success. And we actually collaborated after that in, in, at, at the DNC on a couple of projects. So that was kind of the instinct. I kind of think I had the confidence to do it because I had the Matilla Pain experience and seen how I had a lot of knowledge. And I learned both what they did right and what they did wrong. And I tried to learn both of those lessons. What would you say they did wrong that you learned from? The, not finding a steady kind of stream of business. You know, the direct mail stuff didn't really fill the gap. Difficult being a Boston firm over time. I mean, like you said, there was a period when they were like the, the, the probably the top firm in the country. They went into Gerald Ford's congressional district when he abandoned it for the vice presidency and won an election in a red district for with a Democratic candidate. They were on Newsweek as the whiz kids. They really had their huge moment in the sun. But finding that kind of rhythm was 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 not there. The other thing is true is it's there was a lot of there were four talented people at the head of that firm. And that's a tough, tough balancing act for all good guys, but not lacking in ego. And when I talk to people about their businesses, one of the most challenging things is partnerships, I think. And you've had a number over time. What have you learned about working with equals and trying to run an enterprise? You know, I didn't do it for very long. I kind of, you know, after a few, you know, yeah, few partnerships that didn't kind of really work out in the long term. I basically, for most of my career, owned 100% of the firm and kind of led the firm. And until Yvonne came along, Yvonne Garrett, who had a really powerful background in telemarketing. I always tell people that I was a, as much of a business person as I needed to be to do what I wanted to do. She has a real business mind. The firm transformed when she became involved with it just by having more logic to the way it's structured and the way it's Way, to put, way its contracts were structured, the way it's all it's worked. And, and she's a brilliant researcher and analyst. So um, she and I kind of hit it off very, very early. And, and we've been partners and shared the firm for a long time. But that's the only, that's really the only. What, when did she join you? Maybe, maybe 15, 20 years ago. So, so the, last, the, the last half of my career, she was president in the firm and quickly became the CEO of the firm. And for the last few years, she's basically run the business. And I've uh, just got to do my work and not worry about the business part of it. Can you characterize your firm? What was the actual work of what you did? What did you really get paid for? And how did that change over time? Yeah. At the end of the day, we got paid for raising money. You had to check that box. So the path to that is direct, direct response is kind of a complicated enterprise. It's fundraising. It, it's, it's, it's messaging. It's analytical work. It's kind of lots of technical work around production and so on. As you could probably tell, centered myself on the on the messaging and creative part of that work. Avon is a great messenger. It does 
really good research. She's probably the primary researcher in the direct response space, but she also has a really good analytical mind and, and, and structure and program design. So we do everything. We sort of design the program. We create projections for the program. We make, you know, audience decisions. We'd make analytical decisions. We design what to test. We, we do messaging work that sort of tried to sort of set them apart. What set our firm apart was the messaging part. We just sort of were more, went deeper into, as we talked about earlier, we went deeper into understanding an organization. I always tell our writers in the firm, you can't write about what you don't know. So we really studied deeply the work of our, of our clients and, and what their place in the world and what their unique connection to donors is. One of the things I worry about this year is just that a lot of that uniqueness of, of voice for organizations is starting to fade away. There's a lot of generic, everything's on the line this year. The stakes are as high as they could be. Let's pull out all the stops messages. Everyone's sending exactly the same message with no real sense of their own unique contribution to that enterprise. And it's not working very well. So we tried to not do that at all. We tried to be very, very clear. One example, when we began working with doctors on our borders, we looked at it and we said, oh, we need to really tighten up the connection between the donor and the people who are being helped by the doctors, by the doctors and the patients. And then we did research. And yes, it's true that donors care about the ultimate recipients of the work, but they definitely wanted to hear the story, not from the patient, but through the eyes of a doctor. So having just that insight, having that sort of through the eyes of the doctor perspective changed the way in which they were able to communicate and really kind of made the connection between uh, donor and organization much more intense. So much so that there's a fundraising story that's still a decade later. Later, we, we wrote about 2014. It's still a letter that's used today by MSF. And it's a story of a doctor who is about to operate on a woman who's pregnant and is going to lose her life and her baby's life if she's not operated on. And just as he goes to make the incision, the lights go out in the field hospital. So now he fears he's going to lose everything. He's, not, he's going to lose both of them. And then slowly by slowly, one by one, members of the staff come along with their phones and just light up the operating scene. And he's able to proceed with the surgery and save people's lives. That kind of through the eyes of a doctor story became kind of their mode. So finally, that kind of perspective, that kind of unique perspective on an organization and unique way to talk about it really matters. Tell me about that kind of in through the lens of the relationship with the client, because in a lot of ways, the client has the responsibility for saying what they want to say or telling their vendor, essentially, their advisors what they want to say. But then, of course, in your case and in the case of competitors, there's a lot of expertise that sits outside of Doctors Without Borders or Carry for President or whoever it is. How do you negotiate that? Where do you think the final say should come from and things like that? Yeah, it's obviously always the organization's voice that you're you know, that, that has to be authentic to the organization. But in terms of what stories to tell and how to tell them, there are two dynamics I think are important. One is I always tried when I worked with an organization to form a really close relationship with the leadership of the organization, to not have just a conversation with the direct response staff inside the organization. So Anthony Romero, Cecile Richards, Ben Jealous, they, they, they were all kind of very close personal relationships. So we would talk to them about their work and what they wanted to convey. And then they would help credential what we were, what we were suggesting. And we were able to kind of be much more attentive by doing that. So that's the first dynamic. And the other dynamic is between fundraising writers and program staff, there's a divide that sometimes gets disruptive to, to, to fundraising and messaging and, and organizational positioning in which that uh, fundraisers say, you know, we know what works for people. We're going to kind of just, just tell them what we need. We're going to, in the, the words of program staff, we're going to dumb down what you're doing and make it work for our donors. And program staff are like, oh, these people just don't understand the nuances of my work and so So, so we always help defeat, we always try to defeat that uh, by uh, developing a really close relationship with program staff, learning to understand what really mattered about them and trying to get them to also understand what worked and didn't work in a fundraising and marketing sense and finding that kind of middle ground in a respectful, collaborative kind of way. Those are the two big keys to sort of being able to kind of 
message authentically on behalf of an organization. How did your firm change or did it when, when the internet starts to become a really important place for fundraising in the early 2000s? Just thinking of the Kerry for President campaign in 04, suddenly it's another route for a lot of money to come quickly. And there's a very similar or analogous thing between a letter you receive in the mail and an email that share a lot of characteristics, but have different expertise to some degree behind them. How did, how did that all hit you as a firm? So, so we were fortunate because, you know, as you know, the first place that digital fundraising hit was in politics and especially in presidential politics. We were fortunate enough to be involved in John Kerry's campaign. We were both the Democratic National Committee's consultant and John Kerry's campaign consultant in that campaign. So we had a lot of leverage. So we got to work kind of firsthand with the Kerry campaign. And then we had a lot of, uh, that campaign had a lot of talent on the digital side. People you know, I'm sure, Ari Robin Haft was a big part of that campaign. Zach Exley was a big part of that campaign. Josh Ross was a big part of that campaign. So we got kind of a leg up on our, on our nonprofit competitors because we got to sort of have both being participants and being learners about sort of how that process worked. Uh, uh, in the political space, and then we're able to kind of carry it more into the, the nonprofit cause organization space. There was a period when people had two predictions about digital fundraising, both of which have not panned out. One was that groups like the ACLU and, and, and Planned Parenthood and were going to sort of lose their leverage to groups like Move On, and that you know, the direct mail-based firms, direct organizations would be you know, ghosts of the past and these new organizations would take the place. The other thing, and the same thing would happen parallel in the industry. The direct mail firms would become you know, antiques and, and, and digital firms would, would rule the world. It's never, it unfolded that way for a couple of reasons. One is the uh, nonprofits and the agencies adapt, adopted, adapted themselves. And the other is the digital firms fell into technique only kind of universe. And I know you've talked to some of your other guests about this. I've heard some of your episodes. There's a paucity of really uh, strong messaging inside digital work. So much reliance on technique, so much reliance on deadlines and coffee with Kamala Harris, so that they just never quite found the right meld between message and technique. So as a result, firms like ours learned how to kind of operate in the digital space. We still work collaboratively with digital firms. So, you know, O'Brien Garrett and MNR, for example, share a lot of clients. The agencies like ours have never lost, I keep talking about ours in the present tense, but it's only been a couple of weeks. Uh, agencies like O'Brien Garrett- continue the rest of your life. If yeah, I right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like O'Brien Garrett uh, still tend to be the primary kind of agency or record and direct response programs. The longest interview I've had on the show was with Zach Exley, who you mentioned. If I remember from that, he goes from the Kerry campaign to work for you for a while. Yes, Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. And he and I both. They both are really early in the revolution of online fundraising. And how did that work? The new blood in that area and, and your established firm? Yeah, uh, it worked in a transitional kind of way. It wasn't sustainable. I mean, they did it two, three years. It wasn't sustainable. I don't think any either of them ever had anything they did for more than two or three years before moving on to something else. So we, there was learning in both directions. We never became a full digital agency. We just developed an, an understanding of messaging and strategy and, and technique to play you know, the senior role as a senior agency, usually with digital collaborators. So that was, yeah. But we did a second phase of that, actually, after the Obama campaign. And Steve Gear and Robbie Garla from, the, from that campaign came and joined the firm for two or three years as well. Same dynamic. It didn't last, but it worked in a transitional kind of way. Why do you think there's mostly still two different silos between a direct mail firm and a digital firm that's doing a lot of the same stuff? Why has that persisted? And are there any firms that have managed to do both well? Not really. I don't think there really are firms that have to do well, but there are programs that have learned, have learned to do well. There are organizations that have learned to, they've had developed internal, it's, just, it's kind of a new generation of internal staff who know how to manage both of those and break down a lot of those silos. So those silos don't break down very clearly in 
the structure of firms, but they break down pretty cleanly inside some organizations. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess it does. When you are beginning up with a new client or thinking about who to raise money for, what is the best source? I mean, beyond the list that they already have, how do you, how do you grow that list? What's the best practice for adding to the number of donors? You said you grew the DNC from 50,000 to 500,000. I'm sure that you're doing that at lots of places over time. How? So the biggest change in, in kind of the list work uh, inside, inside direct response has been the shift from individual organizations trading their list to models lists. So now most direct response campaigns are principally driven by model lists, which means that somebody comes together, gets a bunch of organizations to join in, in, in creating a massive database, and then each individual, and, and you agree to share your names inside that database. But then you're able to kind of select names modeled based on sort of lots of characteristics of people inside that inside that list so that it becomes a much more refined way of identifying the list. That's kind of been the big sort of change. Acquisition is tough all around these days, both on the digital and the direct mail side. But that's been sort of the principal kind of shift to sort of to model this, which allows a lot more refinement in terms of finding your audience in a way that's different than just saying, hey, I'm the ACLU. Can I trade names with people from the American way and make see if that works? In the digital world, there are a number of firms that basically in different ways sell donor lists. And there's a lot of dispute among them about what is kosher to do, whether it's some kind of opt-in from a survey or whether it's pulling down stuff from the Federal Election Commission or state election commissions or buying it from campaigns. Are there firms that have that practice in direct mail? There are. The direct mail stuff is clearer because the donor opt-in or opt-out uh, choices are very are very obvious and straightforward. But there are, as you, as you mentioned, there are a couple of folks who have started to try to do the digital equivalent of that kind of cooperative kind of database that you can kind of... Who, who yeah. does that? I think Mission Wired has, has one. Someone else has one too. I have an interview, I have an interview with Ann Lewis over there coming up. So maybe I'll learn a little yeah. bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about bringing Vaughn on. Like how does that, how did that occur? Uh, Vaughn was a senior executive at Share, the big tel, which was a huge telemarketing firm out of Boston-based, Cambridge-based, and which kind of eventually fell apart. She took a break and came back to Washington after after a year or so break, and just came into my office and said, "Hey, I'm just thinking about what to do. What do you think?" And we both thought I was consulting with her about where what her next move should be, not thinking that it should be here at our firm. But as we talked, this sort of seemed very logical. So she sort of joined first as a kind of senior account person. And then eventually became very obvious that she she was a, a logical kind of successor. Did, um, did she talk you into it or you talk her into it or you talk each other into it? I think I talked her into coming and we talked each other into the partnership. It's really, it's really, it's really interesting. It's kind of a, you know, you go through, a, I don't know if it's true of other, other founders, but it's, it was definitely true of me. I went through a cycle when I sort of said, okay, first I want to see if I can make this work. Okay. Well, this looks like a successful firm. I think I can do this for 30 years and then I can walk away and they can walk away. I don't really care what happens to it after my career. And then you get closer and closer to that point. You sort of say, I don't want that kind of whole legacy to kind of fall apart. And there's not, and there's now organizations that depend on it. There's staff that depend on it. There's you know, my own personal sense of legacy that depends on it. And you suddenly sort of feel like you don't want to just close up shop and, and retire someday. You want to see the firm kind of uh, succeed in uh, beyond your own personal time. So Yvonne became the obvious kind of a person who had the sort of the talent. I always tell her that it's one thing to form an agency like 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 we formed to have success that it had. It's another thing to realize that there's someone, you know, in the wings, well not really in the wings, she's really been running the firm for uh, uh, someone capable of kind of taking it to new heights. And, and and that's a really, really rewarding thing for someone who's founded a firm. At least I found that really rewarding. I think also the ability as a founder to recruit people is a very key one. To pick up a Zach Exley or different iterations of, of people who are 
strong-minded in their own right. The, the more talented people, the people who are going to be senior leaders or partners, I, I don't think that comes to everybody easily. Right. Yeah. My wife would tell you that I never had any trouble doing that because I always believed I was the smartest person in the room. <laughs> For better or worse. But, but it is true that, that uh, I, I think there is, you see in some leaders and some organizations, kind of a fear of talent. The Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah, structure. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I always felt pretty comfortable in my position in the industry and with our clients. So I always felt like the more talent I could bring to the table, the better off I was. But I know that's not always easy for people to do. But I, honestly, I didn't find it very difficult. What do you think your firm was like along the way as a place to work? Because a lot of political consulting firms kind of have line staff where the jobs aren't that great. Pollsters, direct mail firms, notably. How was yours? When I announced that I was going to sort of leave the firm, one of the most rewarding things was sort of hearing from so many people that have worked with the firm over time and, and saying, wow, my experience with your firm made my career possible or made, you know, gave me the skills I needed to do this, either inside the firm or outside the firm. So I, I hope that means we did it pretty well. I think there are grunt jobs inside every agency. I think if you sort of um, looked at some of those jobs, the key is finding the right people to do those jobs. People who kind of, you know, if I'm just going to make mail plans all day for sort of, you know, and I'm going to interface with service bureaus all day, who's someone who wants to do that and, and, and doesn't hope to be the, the brilliant direct mail strategist five years from now. Um, so that people kind of found their, found their place there. And then people at the more client facing parts of the parts of the firm found room to grow in that we always let people go when we felt like it wasn't time for them to, not only we fired them and we, we let them go ahead. When we, we felt like there was not the right place for them, that there was a, a path in their career. So figure out who is a keeper and it will be useful for them and you, for them to stay involved in the firm. And who is someone who has maybe grown skills and now needs to spread their wings in some other way. People would always come into my office and say, I'm feeling trapped. I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't know. I think I might want to leave. I would always sort of say, I run a company, not a prison. So, oh so if you think there's a way for you to kind of do that, totally support that. We'll figure that, we'll figure that out. So I think figuring out who to keep, who to let go, who to, and who to like, you know, let invest in their own career arc as opposed to in the arc of your firm. Yeah. Retaining good people, one of the biggest challenges in business and making sure you're allowing the wrong people or the right people for a while to go also, I think. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that was definitely true as we were talking about earlier of the digital folks. Zach would be a 10 year disaster inside a firm. I think he confessed to that many times during our yes. interview. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, yeah. And he's a super yeah, interesting yeah. and talented person. But he's brilliant. Yeah. Tell me about that transition out of CEO. It came remarkably easily. I, I, I feel like I'm really fortunate in the relationship with Yvonne because there are usually in these kinds of transfers tensions. Uh, almost always, yeah. Almost always tensions between sort of who's in control of what while you're still there, and you know, and 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 how the transition works in in, in some way that kind of works for everybody. I don't think I'm being Pollyannish to say. It was almost seamless of the Vaughn, partly because we think alike. We kind of have the same kind of basic sort of understanding of that. If you ask people, we used to frustrate people in the firm where they would ask us a question about something and, and I would give them an answer and I'd say, but you might ask Yvonne. And they'd say, I did. She said the same thing. You know, so there was a lot of that. So we did have the same kind of basic perspective, although we do specialize in different areas. She's super good at stuff that I'm not good at. And vice versa. So it fit together like like two really nice pieces. So um, I didn't have the experience that I know is most common in terms of, and I didn't. I think I don't think I had a lot of founders syndrome in terms of kind of like letting go of it. I was ready to let go of it. Client facing work gets. I always tell people when you're working with staff and clients who could be your children, that's fine. When you're working with them and they could be your grandchildren. It's probably time to hang up your rock and roll shoes and move to another part of your career. So there was that. I've 
talked to a number of consultants who've sold their firms at the end. I guess it depends on the type of firm, but tell me about what it took to do that and come to an agreement. And Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I basically sold the firm back to the firm and then Avon bought a stake in it, but, it, but basically we were able to sell the firm back to itself. Does that mean you get like a revenue share for a while? In no, return, I, get, I, I sold my stock for, for non-voting shares. Yeah. Back to the firm. So, so that, that means you share in profits. I took my buyout. I took my buyout now. So I'm done. And, and you're happy with how that all sorted out? Yeah. 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 So your, your LinkedIn profile now says coming soon, messaging, what's the plan? What's, what are you going to do going forward? So I left for two reasons we talked about. One is I wanted to kind of give people sort of, you know, at, at the next level in the firm, upward movement and get out of their way because they're ready for that. Uh, and so am I. Uh, but I also, uh, for years, I've been threatening myself to do thought leadership. I've focused so single-mindedly on, on our clients that I never really sort of did a lot of stuff beyond sort of specific work to our clients. And I felt like I wanted to sort of do some of that thought leadership work, especially now, because right now, this, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, this is kind of a dangerous dynamic in the, in the community where messaging isn't very profound, isn't very persuasive. And I feel like I can, free of client-facing contact and client-facing deadlines, I can devote some time to sort of thinking through some of those things. It's really not about sharing lessons of my long career. It's about, you know, thinking about where we go next and what happens next. For example, I always feel like some of the best lessons that I've learned about persuasive communication came not from other fundraisers or from inside the nonprofit realm, but from outside of it. The best single piece of advice of persuasive writing I've ever heard was from Elmore Leonard, who did 10 rules for writing. And number 10 was, try not to write the stuff that people tend to skip. And it's really actually a profound piece of advice because what most messages get made less persuasive, not by word choice or by this sentence being here instead of there, but by somebody, the writer or a program staff person, injecting content that might matter to them, but doesn't matter to the reader. And, and they just deaden the emotional arc of, of a letter. So I always translate his, his words into, try not to write what people don't want to read. And that's actually a really powerful kind of piece of advice about sort of how to make things persuasive. I think I might be violating that in my interviews constantly by, <laughs> a, by asking people about stuff that I'm very interested in and maybe <laughs> nobody else is. But <laughs> The other thing that's true is there's been a, a real revolution in behavioral science in the commercial world. Um, and it's not been adopted very well at all inside the nonprofit world, but there's all kinds of ways it does. The biggest is insight is the most fundamental one. What behavioral science tells you is that People make decisions in a very ad hoc, emotional kind of way. And too many of us argue our cases in a very rational point by point way. So that the gap between the way we make our case, the way donors and activists and voters make their decisions, there's a huge gap between those two. And so if you could, if you could close that gap, it'd be way, way, way more persuasive. And, and as we said earlier, I just also just think it's important to argue for the importance of messaging and not the over-reliance on technique, which is kind of a, having a law of the commons deleterious effect on the whole nonprofit community. So I want to try to address some of those things. And uh, I'm going to do it in two ways, starting out one with a, a blog called Five Minutes on Message, with just five-minute reflections on different parts of the 2024 conversation. And the other with a monthly newsletter called The Path to Persuasion, which is, we'll delve a little bit deeper into some of these topics. When you say blog, there's a lot of platforms now for writing that manage your subscriptions and allow you to monetize them. And are you thinking, when you say blog, do you mean blog, like a website someone can just go to? Or have you thought about any of these sort of platforms that are out there? I'm not worrying about monetizing anything. To me, this is kind of like giving back to the community part of my life. One of the things that is true, I think, and it's been especially true over the last year or two, is LinkedIn's becoming actually a really powerful platform for this kind of sharing of this kind of information. So I'll be doing a lot of that. And maybe eventually we'll get to a podcast. And, and I've always got a book in the back of my mind. But um, 
initially I'm going to start with those two initiatives and see if I can't contribute. Not and you know, and a lot of the fundraising advice stuff that's out there is five points about this and six points about that. And I'm not really going there. I really want to kind of write about things that are in context with the 2024 conversation. You know, when you talked about there's a lot of common denominator messaging that's like hair on fire sort of. A lot of that is because, as I, I bet we agree, in the era of Trump, there is a broad agreement that there's a lot of risk to the country right now, especially with his potential reinstallment in power. It's my feeling which only a f- couple political science professors seem to deg- disagree with, that the country's a little different right now with him running for president, being president, r- denying a result, running again. How does that affect proper messaging from your vantage point? Trump 2024 is not Trump 2016 or 2020. Factually, he's more dangerous every, every day. But in terms of the donor response to Trump, it's different. First, it was uh, a sense of alarm, and then okay, let's go, let's go, go to the ramparts, and and that held through much of his presidency. It's you know, donors kind of hung in there for a long time. Since then, I think that it's not just Trump. It's endless wars. It's climate change looking unactionable. That's the, the fear. The fear right now is that too many donors see the things in front of them that they really care about as beyond their reach and unactionable in terms of their in terms of their things. So that's the big dynamic that I feel like nonprofits campaigns and nonprofits, whether they're dealing with electoral issues or with other issues, haven't quite come to to to, to grips with. You mean people are kind of giving up because they're just overwhelmed? They're giving up because they're overwhelmed, but they're like it's like we talked about earlier that it's that epic distress. It's like not that they don't care. They care with their entire hearts and minds, and they're worried to death about it, but they don't feel like they can do anything about it. Fear can persuade, and fear can ultimately paralyze. We're right on the line between those two things happening with donors, and it's leaning towards paralysis. And I worry about that, not just with donors, but with activists and campaign volunteers and voters eventually. And people are going to sit out the election like they did in 2016. Some percentage of people because for whatever reason they are immobilized or disgruntled about something. Find a way to convince people that the things these things are actionable. That's really the, the kind of key. And God knows it's not by just giving them a constant litany of all the things that have gone wrong. If you were in the room as I suspect you have been before with Biden and they're talking about the general message of 2024 and you had your chance to say your piece about what you think ought to be done, what would you say? I would say, first of all, don't do what what we just talked about. Don't sort of just make it, we win this election or we all go into oblivion kind of contest that's not helping with people. But I would also say people get Trump, they get the threat to Trump. It's not new. It's not confusing to them, but they totally get how dangerous it is. People on our side, you mean? Yeah, on our side. They get it. So they don't, so don't, so don't, you don't have to argue that into the ground, you know, cite it. As I said in in a post yesterday on LinkedIn, cite it as context, not as a centerpiece of your message. So I think they told them that. And then I would tell them, you got to talk about the future. Paige Gardner has done some really great work with Stan Greenberg on a recent survey about what motivates people in, in, in the electoral context. And the, the biggest thing it tells you is to pay attention to the future, to people's sense of what their life's going to look like in, down the road and not simply to the outcome of the election being democracy survived isn't good enough. Have you ever had Paige on your program? I think I did. Uh, that was uh, Voter Participation Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A long time ago and not since she left it. And I think yeah. actually reached out to her in the last couple of days and she just responded on LinkedIn. I, I may ask her to come back. Yeah, People seem yeah. to think very highly of her. Yeah, she's doing some really interesting work right now. Yeah. So who do you want to read what you've started writing? Seth Godin is a... a I, yep. I, I've he, met him. Sure, yeah, sure you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he gave me a giant book that big, of, yeah. <laughs> which is a printout of his blog. Oh, funny! Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So he has a, a a principle, which is find the smallest viable audience for what you're trying to do. To me, it's finding the smallest influential audience you want to do. I don't wish that 
you know, the, the blog would have 10,000 subscribers. I wish it would have 400 of, the, 400 of the right subscribers or 200 of the right subscribers. That's kind of my goal. Who knows you still? Is it an outgoing guard of older consultants or is it still the young people that are now running things? It seems to be that the younger audience is intrigued. When I retired, I kind of hinted at sort of what I was going to do next. And a lot of people wrote back saying, wow, I really want to see where you go with this. And a lot of that came from, you know, the next generation, not my own generation. So I hope that that's what we're going to find. I'm confident you're aware that more aware than me going on is the use of different kinds of message testing. There's firms that do it. You can be done online. You, you can do it in concert with YouTube or other platforms, people doing it with panels, with the survey people. How much is what you're going to work on going to be related to that kind of work? Or is it more sort of the, the feel of things and rules of thumb or how, how data-driven is yeah. your approach? Yeah, it, it driven by suggesting ideas that I hope people will take into that kind of testing. The thing that I worry about is, is like I said, that people are relying so much on technique that they're not testing messaging at all. The thing that I worry about more than that is that, is that when people approach messaging, they approach it in a kind of generic way and not in a unique to the organization sort of way. So I'm hoping to kind of convince people that really persuasive messaging is unique to an organization. It draws on advice from far afield from the nonprofit realm, and it takes behavioral science into account in a holistic way. The way in which some fundraisers use behavioral science, to the extent that it's used at all, uh, is little kind of behavioral tricks, you know, anchoring. If you say, I'm looking for $1,000, then your $200 request doesn't look so bad. That's cute. Those are all kind of nice and they're all useful and valuable. But the real value of behavioral science and the real input is what we talked about earlier, which is, is, that, is that understanding that sort of people make quick emotional arguments and not carefully considered point by point by point arguments. Larger donors make those strategic kind of gifts, but a lot of the giving and the majority of the giving in direct response is, is instinctive. And we don't speak to that in an instinctive way. So finding ways to kind of bring those principles into the context of the 2024 election. I, what I'm hoping to affect is the way people message this year, because I feel like, A, it's a big year, so we've got to get it right. And, and B, uh, we are on the verge of losing connection between organizations and their donors. One of the things that's going on right now is people are building platforms to connect artificial intelligence with the writing for persuasion or fundraising. So there are platforms being built for writing your fundraising emails or drafting them, being a kind of co-pilot. And I don't know about indirect mail, but I would be shocked if it wasn't going on there too. Having played with it enough, there is a kind of unearthly competence to a degree that comes out of like a chat GPT, but it is also well short so far of human, especially when you're talking about emotion, especially when you're talking about specifics, especially when you're talking about concreteness and thinking outside of a box and anything that sort of the genius of human intellect at a high level can produce. How do you see this development affecting your space? I, I think you put your finger on it. I think it's very hard for for AI to to kind of imitate the unique voice of an organization, especially if it's future facing voice. I mean, they try to load it up with your voice They, you know, but yeah, yeah. but, but here's what, uh, here's what is true. I still, I use it. I use it to, if I, if I write something, I will always try an AI, AI edit of it just to see if it kind of gives me a couple ideas. Oh, that's interesting. I could say it like that. I think it's really useful as an editor and a suggestion maker. I don't, I, but I think it's way more useful right now at the end of the process than at the beginning yeah. of the process. Well, you can say, here's a 2,000 word thing, make it 1,000 words. Yeah. Yeah. And instantaneous, remarkable, honestly. But I, I think if I were a professor reading papers, I would be able to spot the the deadness of them the smart kid's gonna rewrite it enough to to make it actually human yeah yeah, yeah. frank what else should i have asked you that i haven't 
<laughs> We've covered a lot, of, a lot of good ground here. I guess the question that I have in the back of my mind is, is, is everybody's looking at this year and how persuasive this year has to be. I think we also need to start looking at what does the post-election period look like for nonprofits and progressive causes in either scenario, you know? I um, mean, I anticipate if we lose on the presidential level, a outpouring kind of like we had with the Women's March, but more severe and a lot of people having regrets that they didn't do what was needed to do beforehand. I hope we can forestall that. But also, I do think people should be planning for either scenario and not just like holding our breath and hoping and then going forward. Like we should have plans in place to harden the democracy. I know they've tried, but very little has gone through except Electoral Vote Act and a few things like that. What would you advise people if you're talking to them about both scenarios? Two things. First of all, do plan for both scenarios. Yeah. One of the reasons the ACLU came out of the box so well. Boy, they raised a jillion dollars. Is that they were prepared. We prepared a Hillary win scenario and a Trump win scenario. And, and, and they were able to kind of, they were not caught flat-footed the way a lot of organizations were. So you got to prepare for both scenarios. You got to also recognize that the most common pattern in times of crisis, especially after presidential election, is an initial rush to the ramparts and then reality setting in and people sort of saying, oh, I don't think I can deal with this anymore and turning away. We need to start now to think about if that happens. First of all, will the rush to the ramparts be as intense as it was last time? And my guess is it will. But will it be shorter? Are we getting inured to this crisis? And will people just sort of say, okay, this is our new reality. And I guess, you know, I think one of these alarms progressive donors is that this election, if Trump wins, is a confirmation that there's a whole bunch of people out there who actually see the country in a totally different way than they see it. It's not, there's no Trump mistake. There's no, like, I thought he might do better. There's no, you know who Trump is, you know what he's mean, you know what he's going to do, and you're still voting for him. And I think that depresses the heck out of progressive donors in terms of just kind of that that's the shape the country's electorate is in. That's the dynamic you have to worry about. It's going to be like, I don't know, maybe there's just too many people who believe the total opposite of what I believe. And maybe I should just invest my time and emotional energy somewhere else because I'm I'm some of the loss here. And that's, I think, being prepared for how you kind of deal with that is a project that can't wait till the election's over. Yeah. I'm very doubtful that 50% of the country wants Trump to do all the things Trump wants to do. I think there's a lot of people who have a different lens or inform differently, uh, see the world quite differently. And only a small sliver are the Bannons of the world that are uh, aligned or more with him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. But, but, but there are, there are enough people that would tolerate a, a, a Trump presidency. There seem to be, if you read the polls right now, yeah. a potentially winning coalition there. Yeah. 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 Are you optimistic or pessimistic? I think I'm optimistic, but, but I think for two reasons, for two reasons. One is I don't, trust the Biden campaign to get it right. They seem to be in somewhat of a defensive crouch and stuck as, as pages of the material showed. They're stuck in trying to prove that he has accomplished all he has accomplished. And that's a losing argument. It's, it, I totally get wanting to take credit for what you've done, but that's a losing argument. Saying this is where we're going and this is where we're going to take and this is what your future will look like is really important. I, so I worry that that the Biden campaign won't get there. But I think that there is a universe of progressive voices and progressive organizations that can and should not simply become extensions of the Biden message, but become an advancers of a more future-facing message. And if that happens, I feel like we might pull this up. I think that's an interesting perspective. I, I wonder about the rifts between some types of progressives and the Biden presidency uh, on things like Gaza, on things like climate, where any long-term view has to understand that Biden is far better than the alternative and that to take one issue where you are not aligned and 
and sit it out, vote third party or whatever is absolutely crazy. I've talked to enough people who are hearing that in their families or among their friends to be very alarmed. I feel like in some ways it's, it, it, it Ruth is a fallacy there that, that I feel like progressives who hope for a president who's going to be the ultimate progressive president are barking up the wrong tree. The real progress comes from a electable president who's pretty good on the issues and a progressive movement that pushes him to do the right things. And, I, I think, and actually that happened just now. Yeah. And that's yeah. why so many progressive things came out of the Biden presidency. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's the path, I hope. But I do think that you know the 2025 project is as important as the 2024 project. I'm glad to hear you say that. I hope that the project is a positive one in 2025, yeah, but right. it's going to yeah. be a project either way. Let's hope we can throw away all those kind of second scenario plans. Super great to talk to you. Anything My else class. you want to say? No, it's great. I really enjoyed it. I really love your podcast. And, and, and I think that the frame of your podcast has never been more relevant. The battle between these two forces is like totally there. This is the. I didn't know in May when I wrote that, that it would, you know, that I do more than 10 episodes or that it would still yeah. make sense, but it feels like it to me. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not flagging in my interest in talking to people like you. Yeah. No, it's great. Thanks. That was Frank O'Brien. He is at O'BrienOnMessage at gmail.com if you want to reach him. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.